Amen. If you would, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9 this morning. So Ecclesiastes 8. And with June being around the corner, in a, I think two or three weeks, we'll actually transition, take some time away from the book of Ecclesiastes and spend some time in the Psalms. This morning, would you read with me Ecclesiastes chapter 8? We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, the passage will be up on the screen. Verse 1 Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you might encourage us this morning. Lord, we, whether we realize it or not, we are so dependent on your word. We need your word. So we pray that you might feed us with your living and abiding word. And I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Help us as we give attention to your word to look to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Life often, oftentimes feels like a tug of war. Tension pulled pulling and pushing from one direction to another. And we often feel this kind of tension because our identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, because we are Christians. And this isn't new to us. There are examples about this all over the scriptures from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Apostle Paul felt himself this this tension in Philippians when he talks about his desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, or to remain for the progress and joy of the church. In that sense, he experienced sort of this tug of war between actually two very good things. The apostle Peter speaks of this tension when he exhorts and encourages the church to continue to live their lives as sojourners and exiles in this world, even though doing so, will attract unwanted attention by the outside world and might even lead to persecution. You perhaps have felt this tension of having this identity as a believer, follower of Jesus Christ, and not 
wanting to engage in the same activities that others want to engage in, whether it's unbelieving friends or maybe family members. Perhaps it's in the workplace. Maybe it's a boss, somebody from the top, asking you to do something that would defy your own conscience, that comes from the Word. Maybe it's in ideologies or worldviews or things that are pushed upon you that you don't necessarily agree with because of your Christian convictions. You have this, this tension, this being pulled, and, but you are sort of the rope. Right? It's not that you're doing the pulling, but it's that you yourself are the rope, and you're being pulled in two different directions. Sometimes it's between two very good things. Sometimes it's between something that the Lord calls you to do and something that the world desires for you to do. Now, as a, let me take an aside for a moment When we come to the Word, whether we are reading it and studying it, whether we are preaching through the Word of God, it's important for us to sort of bridge the context and try to figure out how exactly does this apply to my life. And so we come to this passage this morning. This is no different. How exactly does it apply to us? And this passage, I'll tell you the very beginning, that it really lends itself to thinking about the king. In our context, it would be somebody who is in rule over us, In our case, namely, it is the president. Instead of sort of generalizing it, instead we should particularize it, make it more specific, and think, how exactly does this passage apply to me? How does it apply to us as Christians? And there's no way to sort of get around it, because this is talking about the king, somebody who is in authority, somebody who is supreme. But I say this because... I am not in any way intending to preach a political sermon. My desire and intent is to preach this passage in a respectful manner towards the man who is above us. So I don't desire to preach a political sermon. Hopefully it doesn't come across that way. When I say political sermon, I mean a sermon that is more focused on preaching a political view rather than God's view a sermon that is centered on political kingdoms rather than the kingdom of Christ, a sermon that is more concentrated on a political individual, such as the president or some other person in politics, rather than the person of Christ, sermons that are more focused on political parties or politicians or political views or agendas, in my view, are no sermons at all. They have no place in God's church during the Lord's day devalue the purpose of the church gathering on Sunday mornings is an insult to Christ and do nothing to strengthen God's people who are hungering for a word from the Lord. So just know it is not my intent to preach a political sermon, but the passage sort of compels me to speak to the times that we are in today. So with all that being said, let's move on to the text And first, let's set the stage. So in verse 9, it says, All this, this is the teacher and his wisdom and his intellect. He says, All this I observed, meaning what came before, verses 1 through 8, All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So as I said, this passage deals with a king, with somebody who is in authority, and who governs a people that are under his leadership. And I think verse 9 sort of holds the key to unlocking 
the door of interpretation of verses 1 through 8. This passage, verse 9, is telling us that this is particularly dealing with someone in authority, somebody who is a king, even though as we see in verses 2 through 4, we see the king, keep the king's command, be not hasty to go away from his or the king's presence, for the word of the king is supreme. But we see as we continue through the passage that there are sort of words or particular ideas that continue to to sort of show us that this is still dealing with the same person. And verse 9 is no different, namely because we see there that it says that this person has power over man. And we also see sort of the exercise of this person's authority or power. And that is that it is in a manner that is injurious to another person. And so as we look to this passage, I'll tell you that I think that the main, the applicational thrust of this passage is discretion and discernment. And hopefully that will become clarifying as we move through the passage. And what we see here in this passage is that we, or if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe in Jesus who has come down from heaven to fulfill all righteousness, who was without sin and rose again from the dead. If you've given your life to follow the Lord Jesus, then you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're a citizen of the city of God. And as we think about this passage, this passage, I think, speaks to the tension that we feel as citizens of the kingdom of heaven while also living in the city of man under a ruler who does not have the same fear of God that we do. So we live with this tension, and this tension we see, as I said earlier, we see in different places in the Scriptures. We saw that in Peter, as he exhorts the Christians to live as exiles in this world. Hebrews eleven thirteen speaks of this tension, speaking of those who came before us, the saints who came before us. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." These are the saints who have looked for the heavenly city, a homeland that they could not find here in this this world. And so they lived in this tension, this homesickness. 1 Peter 2, 9-12, I won't read the passage in its entirety to you, but it speaks about how we as Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Right, that if, right, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is you. It's talking about you, but it also makes a distinction between you and the rest of the world. The rest of the world, those who not follow, follow the Lord Jesus Christ, is not identified in this way. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And one of the reasons why Jesus... Since that's to believe in him is to be born again. It's because that's what, exactly what it is. You are born again into the city, into a, the city of heaven. 
In other words, when you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you receive sort of a, a new passport. The old passport that says that you belong to the world, that's, that's gone. It's trashed. Now you have a passport that says that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. Earlier this year, my family and I took a trip to Disney, and before you might get, your, get up in arms about going to Disney, this was way before the, all the stuff came out in Florida and their sort of different things that they came out with. But planned it, purchased tickets, purchased plane tickets, planned for it for many months. But it doesn't matter how much planning you do, you're not getting into the kingdom of Disney unless you have a passport, either a particular wristband that they have to scan, or if you have a, a sort of a, 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 in your virtual wallet this passport that you have to download, and you have to put it in your credentials and prove that you actually purchased tickets. But without that, without that passport, all the planning that you do, all the effort that you made, is not going to get you in through those doors unless you prove that you have the passport. And similarly, as Christians, we may not know the date when the kingdom of Christ will come. We may not know the date when we will see those gates open for us. But God has it fixed. What matters to us most is whether or not we have the passport. Whether or not we have the Holy Spirit residing in us who is the guarantee of our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What we need is the passport. If you have the passport, then you'll get in. Now, circle back to verse 1. It reads, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I think this verse functions as a preface to what's coming. It's saying, you need wisdom because of what I'm about to tell you. You need to pursue wisdom. You need to ask for wisdom. You need to conduct yourself in a wise manner. And this wisdom makes a person's face shine. Wisdom is sort of like wearing an invisible crown that others may not see, but you can sort of sense it. There's something about the person when they wear the wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord. It changes one's countenance. While the harshness of the times, trials, tribulations, personal afflictions, personal sufferings might add wrinkles to one's demeanor, one's countenance, the value of wisdom is that wisdom has a way of making you more impervious to the wrinkles that come through the trials and tribulations of the world. It sort of helps the person keep a youthful appearance it doesn't mean that they never go through difficult things in their life. But the sternness of one's face that comes from the hardness of the times just isn't really there because they have a wisdom about them that comes from the fear of the Lord. This wisdom comes with an endurance that helps you to persevere during hard times. It helps the rope maintain its integrity and not fall apart. It's like Moses who communed with God up on the mountain and beheld the glory of the Lord and his countenance was brightened. So the countenance of God's people, they shine as they keep their eyes fixed on the glorious and brilliant heavenly city that awaits to receive them. 
So continuing with the passage, this wisdom is necessary because we are living under a godless king. Verse 2 to 4 says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? So there's a tension here. We are called to keep the king's command. Now it says because of God's oath to him. I don't think that's actually, I would actually disagree with, uh, so I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. I think if you look at other versions of the Bible, they actually don't read that way. Instead it says because of your oath to God. And I think that is probably, I think that's most consistent with the rest of the passage. And so there's this balance of keeping the king's command, but at the same time remembering your oath to the Lord, that is your fear of God. Yes, you keep the king's command, but remember that you have this obedience unto the Lord first and foremost. And be not hasty to go from his presence. I think it speaks to the moments that we might disagree. Right? Why else would you turn away from somebody hastily? Because you might disagree, because you might be angry, because, because you might be upset over what the person has said, because you strongly disagree, and so you turn away. You don't want to have anything more to do with this conversation. But be careful that you not sin in your anger, that you not take stand in an evil cause to bring disrespect to the person in authority, because we have to remember that this person is in a position of authority because he's been permitted or orchestrated to be in that position by God himself, who is sovereign over all nations and sovereign over all kings. At the end of the day, every ruler, every authority is an instrument for God's glorious purposes. Romans 13 tells us in verse 4 that the ruler, he is a servant of God for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Right, so they are a servant of God for your good and for my good. And so therefore, that position demands our utmost respect. However, they don't always exercise their authority as one who is a servant of God. Sometimes instead of bringing justice on the wrongdoer, they bring sort of their perceived justice on the right doers. And in that sense, they're not functioning as God's wrath. Second Corinthians 19.5 says, He appointed judges in all the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. So judges, or those who are placed in positions of authority, 
are to exercise their authority in the fear of the Lord. Now this passage, we might argue, was giving to the Israelites, Old Testament. That was for them. However, I think it still applies today. God does not give anyone that kind of authority over a people without certain expectations. Not so that they can use that authority to run things in whatever way they deem to be right. John 19.10, Jesus and Pilate, Pilate said to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus corrects him and says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So even the authority that Pilate had over Jesus to crucify him, Jesus says, no, you have, the reason you have your authority to crucify me or to release me is because God gave it to you. This authority that you had didn't come from you. You may have been voted in or may ha- maybe you took it by force, but at the end of the day, the reason you are in your position is because God allowed you to be. You are an instrument of God for his glorious purposes whether it's President Biden, President Xi Jinping, whether it's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, whether it's President Putin, whoever he may be, God grants authority with expectations. What comes to mind is that popular, well-known statement from the Spider-Man comic books, with great power comes great responsibility. That is certainly true. And that responsibility is defined by God. The position to rule is a privilege that is, as the scriptures tell us, is tethered to the authority of God. But what we see today in the world is what we see actually, what we read in Psalm chapter 2, where it says that the rulers and the kings of the world say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be tethered to the authority of God. They want to rule in their own way. And certainly things are no different in our case with our own president, which speaks to the secular age that we live in. And it is a secular age. And what I mean by a secular age is that it is a godless age. It is an age that has, wants nothing to do with God. That prides itself in not thanking God. That glories in saying that God isn't real. That God doesn't exist. Not only has it permeated society and culture, but it's even, in many places, infiltrated the church and the lives of Christians as well. In the book, Our Secular Age, Colin Hansen writes, the key theological question for our secular age then is this. Does God get to be God? The answer, even for many self-described Christians, is no, only on our terms. Even for some, yes, we believe in God, but we believe in God according to our terms. God is not God according to what he says in his word, but God is God according to what we say. Friedrich Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, a philosopher, I once said that God is dead. And what he meant by that is 
we've sort of evolved or transitioned to an age where we no longer need God. In our enlightenment, we have progressed. We've made advancements. Now, it is perfectly fine to not believe in God. In fact, it is rational to not believe in God. We don't need God anymore. But he also was a sort of prophet because he predicted that with the absence of God, or that if God is actually dead, then that would only lead to, a, to nihilism, to this self-centeredness and selfishness. It would lead to a meaninglessness. It would lead to a purposelessness. And this is exactly what we see today, this pervasive nihilism, this agonizing meaninglessness, this tortuous purposelessness. Everybody's looking for meaning and purpose in the world. And they're not finding it because the world believes that God is dead and there is no meaning, there is no purpose without God. Nietzsche also said that there would be a loss of values. He said that one of the benefits of God or benefits of believing in God or religion is that you have something to sort of hang your values on. That God is sort of the the rod on which you can hang your values on. But if you don't find, if man does not find a replacement for God, a replacement for that rod, then there will be a loss of values. You have nothing to anchor them on. You have nothing for those values to stand upon, a bedrock, a foundation. And that's exactly how our secular age is today. There's nothing to put the values on. In fact, values are confusing. What's right for one person is wrong for another person. What's right to them is wrong according to the scriptures. There is a loss of values in the world. And the sad thing about, or to make matters worse, about living now as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and the city of man is that we have someone on top perpetuating the confusion and the disaster that the age already is. We feel this tension when the president legislates or intends to take hard, your hard-earned money in order to provide for the slaying of children in the womb. We have to bear this tension when his cabinet and those who support him compare parents to domestic terrorists for simply standing up for the children's education. We have to endure this tension when he says that our children belong to the state and to educators and not to parents. We have to withstand this kind of tension when he promotes sex reassignment surgery for all children as a way to better promote mental health. In that same book I quoted earlier, Carl Truman writes, human nature isn't a psychological or even merely social construct, and our constant efforts to deny that truth can only end in disaster. When we treat one another, when we treat man as just a biological person or just a social being, and nothing more than that, what you end up with is disaster. And it is a disastrous age. It is a confusing age. It is a chaotic age. That is what characterizes the city of man right now. So given the kind of age that we are living in, given the kind of city that we are living in, the city of man. A 
third heading is that we have to discern the times. You might remember when you used to, I don't, know if, I don't think they do this anymore, but when you would turn on the television to watch a show or a movie, it always had like this, this disclaimer. It says the following program has this, this, suggested material, has this language, has violence, and so on and so forth. And it always says, viewer discretion is advised. That's when the church gathering, right, this is intended to be, God intended this to be sort of a, a precursor or a foreshadow to our lives in the heavenly city. Every time we walk through those doors, there's this neon sign that should flash in our minds. I should say, Christian discretion is advised. You're entering the world of man. Christian discretion is advised. Whenever you turn something on in the television, whenever you read the headlines, the newspapers, whenever you, perhaps you enter the workplace, Christian discretion is advised. passage deals with the king. The king gives commands. The king is supreme. Who can question the words of the king? This king has power over man. But verse 6 says, For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. The passage calls for discretion. We may be angry, we may come, become upset over things that are legislated, for things that are promoted from the top. And to some degree, right, we must continue to respect the authority of the king, but there comes a time where discretion is strongly advised for Christians that we have to know when exactly we should keep the king's command and when we should not. And this isn't the kind of king that's described here in this passage. This isn't necessarily a, a dictator. might even just be an upright kind of person. But it shows us that this is a king that we might at times disagree with because of our allegiance to the Lord, first and foremost. So what we need is a Daniel-like discretion and a Daniel-like resolve. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 8, talking about Daniel's three contemporaries, Therefore, at one time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the, firing, the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the promise of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, 
O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the kind of discretion that we are called to have. They trusted in God to deliver them. And as you continue to read, he did deliver them. But they also had a category for God not delivering them. And we have to have the discretion and the resolve to say that no matter what, whether or not God spares me or delivers me, my allegiance to God is first and foremost and most important than my allegiance to the king. Passage says here, the one who keeps command will know no evil thing. And I think that's talking about not in the present, but in the future. Sort of an eschatological preservation, an end times preservation. that you'll be preserved. This is what Jesus was talking about when he says, not a hair on your head will perish. He's not saying that you will be preserved from all affliction and all troubles in this world, but you're following the Lord Jesus to the day of your dying breath will keep you and he will preserve you. That in the end, you will not suffer any harm. Daniel himself shows this discretion and this resolve, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 6, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So legislate, put into law that all men are to worship you and the old golden image that you have established. Therefore, the king Darius signed a document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows on his upper chamber and opened towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said to the, before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Right? Signed into law a commandment that would violate the conscience of Daniel that goes against what God has written in his word. 
And knowing that he could suffer harm and death, he decides that it is better to obey the commandments of God and the commandments of men. And time fails for me to, rem- to remind you of the discretion showed by Moses in his confronting Pharaoh, Esther in, conf- in confronting the king, or even any or all the prophets of old who confronted the kings because of their sin and their disobedience unto the Lord. So as we live in the city of man, it requires great, great discretion. Knowing when to obey and knowing when we are called to follow the Lord, even if it means disregarding or disobeying the commands of the king. This calls us to live wisely. And how do we live in wisdom during, as we live in the city of man? There's a time and season for everything. It says in this passage, there's a time and season to know what is the proper due course of action depending on the times. And it requires wisdom, it requires discretion, requires discernment. But there is one thing that we can always do that is always appropriate and necessary in any time, in any season, in any occasion, and that is to pray. 1 Timothy 2.1 says at least one thing we should be praying for. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Just because we might disagree with the commands that come from above, doesn't excuse us from not praying. We are commanded to pray for those who are above us. We are commanded to pray for kings. We are commanded to pray for our president, namely, or so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, that he might rule with a wisdom and might institute those things that might lead to the kind of life given to peace, in a way that we can continue to live as Christians. And we may continue to pray, we should continue to pray, and we might see that the Lord, for whatever reason, has not answered our prayers. But with that, we can look to verse 8, where it says, No man has power to retain the spirit or power of the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. That passage speaks to the limitations of the power of the king. It's limited. It can only go so far. Just as a person cannot discharge himself in the middle of war because he doesn't have the authority to do so, because, he doesn't have the, because his power is limited, so are the powers of the king. They are limited. He has no power over death. His wickedness will not deliver him or cause him to live longer. He cannot retain his own spirit to live longer than he desires. Death renders all men equal. This is a reminder that the power of the king is considerably, considerably limited. When it comes to death, his power fails here. His authority fails here. His rule fails here. His wealth and resources fail here. His might and soldiers fail here. And his will fails here. And when it comes to death, there is only one whose power does not fail. 
And that is none other than Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered and beaten death. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 10. A passage familiar to you, because we pray this often on Sunday mornings. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't pray that prayer as something rote. We don't pray that as a sort of mantra. We don't pray this as something that if we do this, then this will guarantee this. But this is a prayer of longing. This is a prayer coming from the heart. It's intended to be a prayer coming from the heart of those who are just homesick, who are eager to see the heavenly city, to see God's kingdom come and reign on this earth. It's the prayer of anticipation. It is a prayer of great, deep desire. And this is a prayer that we should pray often, especially if we continue to live as exiles with this tension. So we pray. Second, we encourage. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We encourage one another with the reality that Jesus Christ is coming. Jesus has not left his bride abandoned on the altar. Jesus has not orphaned his children on earth, but Jesus is coming. Jesus will return for his bride. Jesus will return for his people. Therefore, we don't put our trust in man. We respect the authority, but we don't put our ultimate trust and hope in the man. But we put our trust in Jesus, who's the only Messiah, the Savior, the God-man who died and rose again from the dead, the one who redeemed us from sin and the wrath of God the one who is the king of kings and the one who is the Lord of lords, the son of man, the son of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who is faithful and true, who rides on a white horse. This is the one who told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane at the moment of his arrest, sheath your sword, Peter, but this one, the Bible tells us, is coming again with his sword drawn to vanquish the city of man, subdue every rebel ruler, obliterate evil, and establish his glorious kingdom on earth. So be encouraged with those words. Jesus is coming. The coming of Christ is like a ray of sunlight to the Christian who has been traveling in the dreary and cloudy skies of the city of man. Let me give you one final exhortation. This is for specifically for those of you who have children at home, who currently are raising children in the home, or if you desire children. So we live in the city of men, and it is a godless age. Not only is it a godless age, but it is also increasingly an anti-family kind of age. It seeks to redefine the family. It is not anything like the picture of the family that is painted for us in the scriptures. 
It thinks that it is doing good to the family, but instead it's seeking to destroy the family. The family is essential to any society. The historian Edward Gibbons, in his work on the fall of the Roman Empire, he identifies five major causes that led to the destruction of the Roman Empire. And one of those causes was the breakdown of the family. The Congregationalist minister, John Angle James, in the 18th century, had once said, the well-being of the state is dependent on the well-being of families. If the state is compared to a pillar, families is the cement which holds it together. Let this be wanting, let the well-being of families, let this be wanting, let this be lacking, and however inherently excellent the materials, however elegant the shape, however ornamented the base, the shaft, or the capital may be, it contains in itself the principle of decay, an active cause of dilapidation and ruin. But let it also be said, we should fight for our families, not just because it is good for the well-being of any thriving society, but also because we desire for our children to know the Lord. There is a war right now, and it is a war for the hearts and minds of our children. And we have to have the discretion and the courage and the resolve to say, over my dead body, will you get my children? We can and certainly should teach our children to respect their leaders, but we also have to teach them that these leaders are also not gods. The leader of God's people in the Old Testament, Joshua, had once said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's not just a purpose statement for one's life and family, but that has to become your family. Where in me and my house, where in my house, we will worship the Lord, where Christ is king, where Christ will be the center of our family. The Bible commands, not suggests, but commands that parents raise up their children in the fear and the instruction of the Lord. They have to be taught Christ. They have to be taught to fear the Lord, to revere the Lord, to accept the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Yes, we pray for them that the Holy Spirit of God will come upon their lives and regenerate them and cause them to be born again, but we put them in a most favorable position if we continually give them Christ by praying with them, by reading the Scriptures to them, by talking to them about Christ. The Bible says, the Bible tells us that this responsibility is mainly given to parents. It is our duty, it is our responsibility. So let us embrace this responsibility. Let us press into this responsibility that our children would know Jesus Christ that they would know the fear of the Lord and grow wiser because of it, that we may present to them truth as it's written in his word so that they might see through the illusions that are there in the world. We can and should have a high regard and respect for country, for government, for our leaders, but we are the people of God first. 
And we are temporarily living in the city of man. And that requires wisdom, that requires discernment, and that requires a great deal of discretion. And God has given us his word so that we may have wisdom. And God tells us to pray for wisdom, and he gives it generously to those who ask. Let us tap into those means so that we might live rightly, godly, and honorably, honorably unto the Lord as citizens of the kingdom of heaven while living in the city of man. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come before you and, Lord, we admit that, that some days are harder than others. Some days it is harder than others to live in this tension. Lord, sometimes we just, we do give in to the tension that we feel because we don't want the tension. Lord, but would you strengthen us? Would you encourage us? Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and the heavenly city that awaits us. That is our home. That is what we long for. Help us to pray for it. Lord, hasten that day. But until that time comes, give us the wisdom, give us the discernment, give us the courage, give us the discretion to live as citizens of your heavenly kingdom. And help us in those times when it's especially, especially difficult. Help us by your grace, through your power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.